Well, today we are going to take a break from the book of Psalms. We're going to go back to the book of Acts. And we're going to see that the way people come to know Jesus is through average, everyday, ordinary people sharing and showing Jesus with those around them by the power of the Spirit. So if you've got a Bible, look with me in Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, feel free to check out the screen above me. And as you are turning there, pray with me, and then we're going to dive in. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for this morning, the opportunity we have to come here to gather under your word, uh, to, to sing songs that you so rightly deserve. And Father, I just pray that this morning, that the words of my mouth and meditation, my heart will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. I pray for each and every person in here, God. I do not know what is going on in their life, but God, you see the unseen. So I pray that today you give faith where faith is needed. I pray that you grow faith, strengthen faith, encourage faith, convict faith. Do what you need to do, God. We just humble ourselves under your word, asking you to speak. And so, God, we love you and we thank you that you have not left us to guess who you are, but that you've given us your word, Genesis all the way through Revelation, showing us who you are. And I just pray that, Jesus, you be big this morning. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Now, I grew up in a home that was religious but didn't know Jesus. You see, each and every Sunday, we would go to church, and we oftentimes heard a lot about what we had to do. You see, the message about what Jesus had done took a backseat about what we must do to make ourselves right with God. So as a result, I grew up thinking I had to be really religious and that my good deeds had to somehow, somehow outweigh my bad deeds in order for God to love me. Now, when I was in third grade, there was this kid by the name of Mike who moved into the neighborhood. Now, Mike was a Christian, and he quickly realized I was not. And so what did Mike do? He started to share Jesus with me. He would invite me to church each and every week, and each and every week, I would tell Mike no. Well, when we got into eighth grade, Mike started to play on the passions of a middle school boy. He said, hey, Travis, at my church on Friday nights, they play basketball. You like basketball, right? And I was like, yeah, sure, I like ball. He goes, on Friday nights at this youth thing at my church, they eat pizza. You like pizza, right? I'm like, cool, yeah, I like pizza. And then he said, hey, Travis, you know that girl you like? I was like, yeah. He goes, she goes to the church on Friday nights. Well, he never had to tell me again. I started to go. Now, my dad thought that was a little shady. He thought something was up. He used to have to drag me literally to the car to go to church, and now I'm going on my own. And I'm not telling my dad I'm going to church, play ball, eat pizza, and date this girl. So my dad, instead of telling me not to go, did something completely radical. He started to go. Except he didn't go on Friday. He gathered up the whole family and started taking us on Sunday. And as my dad sat in that Sunday service and he heard Pastor Bob preach, it was the first time in his life that he heard that a relationship with God wasn't dependent upon what you do, but on what Jesus has done. My dad learned that Jesus lived the perfect life he was meant to live, that he died the death he was supposed to die, not just for him, but instead of him. And that Jesus rose again, and that if my dad would just turn from his sins and trust in Christ, he could be made right with God. And right there on that Sunday morning, my dad became a Christian. He went home, led my mom to Christ. They went and got baptized in a pond in Kentucky, my home state, that belonged to the girl that I was dating who broke up with me because I wasn't a Christian. Anybody know what that's like? And I watched as my dad went under and got baptized by Bob and then, or by John actually, and then uh, he baptized my mom. And with that, I could not get away from Jesus. Not only was Mike telling me about Jesus, but so was my mother and my father. And in 1995, I was sent on a high school youth trip. I think it was to Gunnison, Colorado. And while I went, uh, I didn't go alone, for my father went with me as a youth leader. There he was, rocking his socks with his flip-flops, right? Whatever that means. And I was there just to play ball, eat pizza, and find a new girl. About a Thursday of that week, my dad called me into his dorm room. He could tell I was not paying attention to anything that was there. 
And with that, my dad shared the gospel with me for about the hundredth time. And it was in that moment at 15 years of age, I saw the goodness of who Jesus was and what he had done for me and how he changed my father's life and how he wants to do that for me. And in that dorm room, I trusted in Christ through my dad sharing the gospel with me. It was so funny because Pastor Bob was on the trip and he goes, hey, make sure I told you right. Go ask him to make sure it was right. And so I walked down to Pastor Bob. I said, dad told me this. He goes, yeah, he did a good job. And I was like, okay, so I'm a Christian, right? And they're like, yeah, you're a Christian. We went back home. My dad baptized me in that same pond he was baptized in, and he held me under for a long time. His words, to get it all out of you, but that's not what it means. We'll clarify that, okay? And then I came up, and then just like Mike, just like my father and just like my mother, guess what I started to do? Tell other people. By God's grace, I was able to see my cousins, Brent Blair and Brad, all come to faith in Jesus. Their mother, Susan, Daryl and Susan, my aunts and my uncle and their or their kids, Mason, Mackenzie, and Brooke. Brent's starting a church in California. Brad's doing ministry in, in Kentucky. And God did a radical work in my life. And I could go on. You see, the reason I tell you that is because I believe people like Mike, my father and my mother, are God's ordained means to share the good news of what his son has done with every tribe, nation, and people, and language. You see, Mike is just an ordinary kid full of the Holy Spirit, who was faithful to share and show Jesus to me. My dad is just an ordinary guy, full of the Holy Spirit, who was working at Ford at that time. And my mother was just a busy, stay-at-home mom who was just faithful by the power of the Holy Spirit to share. And at Mission Church, we are passionate about seeing the message of Jesus reach Las Vegas, the West, and the world. But how is that to happen? That cannot happen solely through Pastor John. That cannot happen solely through Dustin and Bill and Jackie. Sure, God is going to use them. Yes and amen. But what we are going to see in our text today is that God doesn't only use them. That God uses average, everyday, ordinary people. How do I know that? Because that's my story. Nobody in my life who shared the gospel with me at that point that I recall was a paid professional. But rather, it was just average, everyday, ordinary people being faithful to share and show Jesus to me. And if you follow Jesus right now, you need to hear me. That's also you. How do I know that? Because that's how Jesus' message spread throughout the book of Acts. It spread through average, everyday, ordinary people empowered by the Spirit. You see, in the book of Acts, the resurrected Lord Jesus meets with his disciples. He's talking to them on a hillside, showing them evidence that he's alive and teaching them about the kingdom. And one day, as they were on the hillside, and he was teaching, the disciples look at him, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, it says this, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, that's not a completely irrational question. I mean, they spent three years with Jesus, watched him do the miraculous, watched him die, come back to life, and they're looking at Jesus going, hey, Jesus, is this a time in which you're going to overthrow Rome and reestablish our nation? Yet Jesus responds to him in Acts chapter 1, verses 7 through 8 with this, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do not overlook what Jesus just said. The disciples' vision is way too small. You see, they had nationalistic goals and dreams. Yet Jesus said that when his gospel comes and his spirit comes into his life, it's not just going to reach our nation. It's going to go through every space and place in this world. That is why Jesus tells them that when the spirit comes into your life, don't miss this. He doesn't say you might be a witness. He doesn't even say you and I get a choice in being a witness. 
In the original Greek, this is an indicative mood, an indicative mood, which just basically means that when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. That when the Spirit comes into your life, yes and amen, he reconciles you back to God through trust in Jesus. But don't miss this. He also makes you a missionary. He makes you a witness. And what does a witness do? Well, who in here has ever witnessed a car accident? Many of us have seen a car accident. When the police officer comes up to you and he says, he asks you a question, what does he say? Tell me what you saw. Tell me what you witnessed. A, you know, a witness really doesn't do anything. Rather, they just talk about a lot of what they saw and what had already been done. And that is what Mike and my father and my mother did to me. They told me over and over and over again, not what I must do, but about what Jesus has done. And it's not like the Spirit only came on a select few. When you study the book of Acts, he didn't just come on a select few. He didn't just come on 12. But rather, if you look in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, it says that the Spirit came down on 120 people. And guess who was amongst those 120 people? Average, everyday, ordinary people who were empowered to share and show Jesus with the people around them. But there's a problem. And what is that? Well, for seven entire chapters, the church of Jesus has not moved. Jesus says, when my spirit comes, you will be my witnesses. You don't have a choice. It's not a might. You will. Yet for seven entire chapters, they're stuck in Jerusalem. And it's not until chapter 8 that we see that they step outside the city. But why is that? Look with me in Acts chapter one, 8, verse 1. It says this, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And if you've got a Bible, underline this next part. Except for who? The apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I know I can read that. Many of you feel completely lost. I'm sure I'm not the only one who has walked into a movie knowing I was going to be late, but thought, hey, I could figure out as the movie was going on, miss the character development, the plot, and everything. I still remember to this day, I did not figure out what Johnny Depp had to do with that secret window until we got it on DVD later. Remember those things? Or, like, that's ancient. I'm old, right? DVD, you remember that? And, like, and that's how you can feel as you come to this text. So let me catch you up really quick. In Acts chapter 7, there was an average, everyday, ordinary guy by the name of Stephen who was witnessing about Jesus, telling these religious leaders about Jesus. Well, they got upset about it. And so they picked up rocks and they literally stoned him to death, threw those rocks at him so hard that it killed him. Some of the guys in that crowd, in that mob, throwing those rocks, took off their robes because they wanted a better windup. And they gave their robes to this guy by the name of Saul, who was serving kind of like as the coat check. And what we read is that Saul, who we know as Paul, approved of this execution. And after Stephen's death, things got worse. While the church was mourning his death, Saul started ravaging the church. Many of you know what it's like to watch National Geographic. And you see a group of hyenas or lions chewing on a carcass. It's gross, but it's kind of awesome, right? And like, how many of you ever watched Shark Week? I am scared to death of the ocean. I don't like going in, but I watched Shark Week. I don't know why. I'm a glutton for punishment. And I sat there and watched these sharks eat on this well car because I was like, that's absolutely disgusting, but kind of awesome. I mean, what are they doing? They're ravaging it, literally ripping the flesh 
off of those animals. And that is the image you and I are to get as Saul is entering house after house, dragging off men and women and Christians and throwing them into prison. He is trying to obliterate and annihilate the name of Jesus and his church from the earth. And mission, what this shows us, and this is a hard truth, and I need you to know that I love you. You and I can either live in obedience to Acts 1.8, or we can be forced to live Acts 8.1. I need you to hear this. For seven entire chapters, the disciples of Jesus have not moved. And it's not until chapter 8 that they go outside of Jerusalem. And what this shows us is that the church spreads not in spite of suffering, but because of it. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. All persecution upon the church is satanic. Yet Satan's goal is to suppress the church, but God uses it for his redemptive purposes. Because just like gas on a fire causes that fire to grow, and just like a boomerang comes back to harm the one or to come to the one who threw it, Every time Satan tries to destroy Jesus' church, it just comes back to defeat him. You see, suffering, friends, is inevitable, but God's mission is unstoppable. How do we know this? Where do these Christians go? They go to the very places Jesus told them to go in Acts 1.8. But notice who went. The apostles, the paid professionals. No. Who went? Average, everyday, ordinary people who are full of extraordinary power in the Holy Spirit. And mission, please don't miss this. The first time the gospel of Jesus went outside of Jerusalem, it wasn't carried on the mouths of the paid professionals, but it was carried through the mouths of ordinary people like you and me. I once heard a guy say that Christians are like fertilizer. You pile them all up in a big pile, they'll burn a hole in the ground. Spread it over some field, over a field, it'll do some good. Heard somebody else say Christians are like manure. <laughs> pile it up in a, you know, one big pile, it stinks. Put it over a field, causes things to grow. So whether you see yourself as manure or fertilizer, you get the idea. And in the 1700s, there was two guys by the name of John Leonard Dober and David Nitchum who were sitting in a church service like you are right now. Their pastor stood up and talked about a group of people in the, the West Indies who had never heard of the gospel. You see, there was an atheist slave owner who had about 3,000 slaves, all who would live and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. And so what did John and David do? Something completely radical in our eyes. They decided to sell themselves into slavery to share Jesus with those people. And don't miss this. This was no short-term mission trip. They were going, and in the words of a missionary, they were burning the boats never to come back home. Many of their family and friends weren't for it. Their pastor stayed, yet as they pulled out from the dock, John and David linked arms, they held up their hand, and they said, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of their suffering. They looked back to see their family and friends on the dock, not knowing if they would ever see them again. And they said, may the lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Who is that? That's Jesus. You see, they knew they had to be a witness. They knew they had to go. Because that's what the Spirit does in our lives. And the last I checked, there are 16,789 people groups in the world. 6,950 of them have little to no access to Jesus. And that re represents 2.8 billion people. How does that make you feel? Here's what I'll tell you, Mission. There are not enough paid professionals to reach those people. Jesus never intended it for it to just be on John and me and other pastors. 
Jesus always said, I'm going to empower all of my disciples to reach everyone, every place on this earth. Average, everyday, ordinary people, full of spirit, living in obedience to just go. And mission, what John Leonard Dobear and David Mitchum did should not be radical. It has always been Jesus' plan for his gospel to spread through this means, through average, everyday, ordinary people proclaiming and demonstrating. You see, I briefly talked about Stephen. Stephen, absolutely, yes and amen, witnessed about Jesus with his words, but did you also know he cared for some widows? And we're going to read about a guy here in a second by the name of Philip, who absolutely, yes and amen, cared for some widows, but he also shares Jesus with his words, but he also meets the tangible needs of a group that is highly, highly despised. Look what it says in verses 5 through 8. Philip went down to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And when the crowds with one accord had paid attention to what was being said by Philip, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Gosh, I want there to be joy in the city, don't you? You see, the entire church was scattered except for the apostles. And with that, Luke zooms in on this guy by the name of Philip. And where does he go? He goes to Samaria. You and I read that, we yawn. But if you were living in this time and you heard this read, you would go, Philip went to Samaria? And you would hear kind of like, dun, dun, dun. You know what I'm saying? Like, this is no good. We know from John chapter 4, verse 9, that the Samaritans and the Jews had huge racial and religious tensions that existed for thousands of years. You see, Jews were really into purity laws. Samaritans were half Jews, half Gentile. The only way I know to explain this is think of maybe like mudbloods in Harry Potter, okay? And you kind of get the idea. Yet there was not only a racial tension, there was a huge religious one, for Samaritans were known to be heretics. They had their own version of the Old Testament. They had their own temple. And it's not like you and I should just feel bad for Samaritans because they would oftentimes give it right back to the Jews. It is believed that if the Jews wanted to communicate to people up in the north, here's what they would do. They'd go up to the peaks of the mountains and they would light fires. This is kind of funny. And people talk about how Samaritans would go up there and light those fires to communicate to those in the north. And it wasn't until they got into the temple that they essentially saw that they had been what? Prank called. That's annoying, isn't it? As, as the Passover was about to take place, Samaritans would throw pigs into the temple, desecrating it. And they would oftentimes beat up Jews on their way to the temple with their gifts. And that is why Jews would not even sit on something that a Samaritan would touch, eat something that a Samaritan would give them, and they would actually pray, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. And extremely devout Jews, when heading back to Judea from Galilee, Galilee in the north, Judea in the south, they would have to go right through Samaria. And devout Jews, instead of going through Samaria, would add an extra day on their journey and go around just to avoid going through their town. Now, many of you know, if you've been coming to mission for any length of time, you know I'm a diehard Kentucky basketball fan. And if there's one team I despise more than any other team, it's this team called Duke University. Now, I've driven across this country with three kids several times, 29 hours, okay? Getting ready to do it again, okay? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? It's annoying. And if I had to drive through Durham, North Carolina, where Duke is located, just to get them to stop, I would do it. 
Yet think about what devout Jewish people would do. They would add an extra day onto that journey say, with kids saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's hatred. And Philip, with all this history, when he's just evicted from his home, evicted from his home, decided that the very first place he would go is where? Samaria. What this shows us, friends, is that the gospel you and I are sharing isn't for any, everyone, then it's for no one. You and I do not get to pick and choose who Jesus saves any more than I got to pick and choose who my biological brothers were. And believe me, I have some suggestions. And I'm sure they do. Yet, Mission, I need you to hear me. The same gospel that Pastor John is going to be preaching here and the same gospel that I'm going to be preaching in Kentucky, the same gospel that my friend SP is preaching in Uganda, my friends in Turkey and Ireland, that same gospel is the only gospel that creates a unity and love amongst people from different races and places in life and covers thousands of years of hurt. You see, Philip didn't go into Samaria and proclaim to them five things they must do. Unlike what I heard growing up, Philip likely went into that city and said, guys, your adherence to your Old Testament is not going to work. Your temple worship is not sufficient. You need to trust in the sufficiency of what God has provided. And that is his son, Jesus, who lived the perfect life you and I were meant to live. That died the death you and I were meant to die, not just for us, but instead of us, but also rose again so that all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him could be made right with God. And don't miss this, be brought into a big, huge family called the church. You see, the baptism we are about to witness absolutely yes and amen, shows their relationship, symbolically shows I'm trusting you, God, as my only hope. But also Paul talks about how that same baptism shows that they not only belong to God, but they belong to us. Brothers and sisters. And you and I don't get to pick and choose who goes in that tub. Who does? Jesus does. You see, Luke tells us that the crowds of Samaritans gathered around Philip. They didn't just hear him preach, but they saw the signs that he did. That when Philip went into that city, went into that place, he proclaimed Jesus and he presented Jesus. He declared Jesus and demonstrated Jesus. He shared Jesus with his words and showed Jesus with his actions. And it's here that many of us start to get tripped up when we talk about miracles. But that word sign is so helpful for it shows you and me what a miracle's intended purpose is. And what is that? The point beyond itself. Like I shared with you, I've driven across this country several times. I'm getting ready to do it again with my son who has his permit, okay? He's got to get in a few more miles before he takes that test, so we're going to make sure he gets a lot of miles, okay? And so he's going to be driving with me, and on the way, we are going to see signs, right? Stop signs. We're going to see Albuquerque. We're going to see Amarillo or something like that. I don't know what we're going to see. We're going to see signs of places we should go. And as my son is driving, do I want him just to marvel at that sign? Do I want him just to go S-T-O-P? Wow, that's beautiful. They can spell. No, what do I want him to do? Go beyond the sign and do what the sign is pointing to, and that is stop the car. If we have to take an exit, and he's just marveling at the exit and drives right past it, do you think I'm happy? No, I'm like rerouting, rerouting, rerouting. You know what I'm saying? It's annoying. You and I are never meant to just stop at the sign. We're supposed to go beyond. We know that downtown. You go downtown, it's the only city I've lived in where the billboards talk to you. And do they just want you to marvel at them? No, they want you to go beyond whatever it's pointing to. 
And that's all Philip's miracles were meant to do, guys. They were to validate his message and to point them beyond himself to put their faith and trust in Jesus. One theologian says it like this. This is a little long, but just hang with me. We're almost done. It says, these statements are so simple that we may overlook the wisdom herein. The only way we'll see a movement of God that lifts the whole city is that they're a combination of word and deed. You and I must not be too distracted by the fact that Philip's deed ministry was miraculous. We have several times discussed the fact that we should neither insist that all miracles have ceased, and they haven't. I saw one this week. Joyfully saw one this week. Nor insist that the church exhibit the same kinds and numbers of miracles at every time and place. The fact was that Philip saw physical misery around him, and he worked on it. He healed the sick. Also, he saw spiritual bondage, and he healed it, cast out demons. They, the crowds, flocks to and listen to the preaching. In the same way, the people of a city need to see, A, Christians, ha uh, Christians having compassion on the physically suffering, the poor, the dying, the orphans. And they need to see, B, the changed lives of people who through Christ have been delivered from psychological and spiritual bondage. Then they will listen to the gospel in mass. You see, Philip preached the gospel with his words, but also Philip lived the gospel that he preached. He's just an ordinary, average, everyday guy who's full of power in the Holy Spirit, just being faithful to share Jesus through word and deed. And the reason here in a moment, I'm going to baptize my daughter. And the reason I got baptized, the reason my wife got baptized, and the reason we're going to see other people get baptized, and likely the reason you got baptized is because somebody was just faithful to live in obedience to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, to share and to show through the power of the Holy Spirit who Jesus is to you. And I can't help but to think that there's some in here going, yeah, Travis, but that's easy for you to do. No, it's not. I remember the first time I asked my wife uh, on a date. Let me ask you a question. Was I confident? No. I was stuttering like, hey, you want to go out? Like, da, 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 da. And I can't tell you how many times I'm talking to people about Jesus and I feel that same way. It's just like nerve-wracking. But when that happens, what do you think I'm focusing on? Me. What am I not relying upon? The power of the Holy Spirit. And some of you heard me talk about this before, but several years ago, I was so convicted over the fact that I wasn't being faithful to share and show Jesus to the people around me. Really busy going from my church office back home, church office back home. And so I was up taking a shower, and I was praying, God, push me out in my neighborhood. All the power went out on the street. I got out, dried off, put some clothes on, came down, looked at Jess. I was like, what's going on? She goes, I think all the power's out. So I go outside. Guess who was all outside? All my neighbors. I got into a conversation with Jimmy. He comes over to me and he looks at me and he says, hey, my girlfriend broke up with me. I lost my job. Life's really terrible right now. I share the gospel with him and I'm just killing it. Like, I'm like, dude, Jimmy's going to get baptized right now. Like, we're going to have water, part, you know, just come in this desert. Lights are going to come back on. Lights came back on and Jimmy looked at me and said, gee, thanks. And he walked back home. That's basically what he said. Let me ask you a question. Was that a failure? No, what am I supposed to do? I'm just supposed to be a witness. His roommate, Rick, in his garage, I had no idea that if I got this wrong, I could die. NASCAR fans are a bit crazy, amen? Like, they follow drivers, and if you talk about another driver, you could be in a fight. And I remember walking by, he was watching NASCAR, and by the grace of God, I just said, hey, you a Gordon fan? Jeff Gordon's the only one I knew. And he goes, yes, I didn't realize if he was an Earnhardt fan or something else, I could die. I could be seeing Jesus. 
got into a conversation with Rick, came over to my house, came over to my house church, came and to the church in which I would teach at. And by God's grace, he was so faithful and opened up his heart and he received Christ and we watched him get baptized. My wife, Jess, um, she's a lot better with her words than she gives herself credit. But when we were living in Utah, she looked at me and she said, how can I be a witness? And if you know anything about my wife, she can cook. She can make things that make them taste good and they look good. Like she'll heat up a burrito for me out of a package and make it look it came out of a five-star restaurant, right? And I said, Jess, if you cook or do something, we'll throw a party in the front yard and they'll come. And so she did. We put out invitations in our neighborhood. We went all up and down the street. We had 23 people, a gecko and an iguana in our front yard. And guess who got to tell them about Jesus? Me, but so did she. You see, what was the result of Philip's ministry in Samaria? Joy. Now, I don't know about you, but I think Las Vegas needs more joy, right? And how is that going to happen? Through average, everyday, ordinary people being faithful to share and show Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you're a Christian here this morning, let me just encourage you. Who is one person right now you can share Jesus with? Who is one person, just one person that God has put on your heart to share and show Jesus to? 86% of people said they'll go to church if you invite them. I know that's true because I went. I'm part of the 86. And we're moving into a season in which a big, huge like, light is going to be shined on Jesus. And you and I have a tremendous opportunity to invite people. And who was scattered in our text? Average, everyday, ordinary people. And you need to understand something, friends. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, empowering you to be faithful to share and to show. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. And you're wondering, what's this have to do with me? Maybe somebody invited you here and said, hey, I'll buy you lunch if you come. And you're going to get that lunch. And hey, invite me. I'll go with you, okay? But I want you to hear me very clearly that your friend inviting you here this morning, your friend telling you about Jesus is not them being mean, cruel, or judgmental. It is the most loving thing they can do. You see, Psalm 34, 8 says it like this, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. To taste something is to experience it. And we all naturally share and boast in that which we experience. That is good. I told you, my favorite team is the University of Kentucky. That Kentucky football team beat Florida. First time they've done it in a couple decades. What do you think I did in that moment? No, I put that stuff on Twitter. Oh, C-A-T-S. Like, how many like, C-A-T-S, cats, 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 right? I have to finish it because it's in me. How many of you guys have seen that video of that guy taking a gator and putting it in a garbage can? Yeah, I sent that to my Florida friends because they're the Florida gators. Why would I do that? I'm like, look, we put you in the garbage, man. Like, what? What? I don't do that stuff. But I enjoyed it, and I naturally, naturally share what I enjoy. On my eighth wedding anniversary, we got a gift card. We were in Atlanta. We went to Keith Rathbun Steakhouse. I got a dry-aged cowboy ribeye. It was awesome. And do you think I just kept that secret to myself? No, I tasted and saw it was good, and I've told everybody. And this is like, I've been married 20 years. You do the math, and I'm still talking about it. Pray for my wife. I remember the steak on our eighth anniversary, right? Like, but I naturally share that which I enjoy. 
And when your friend shares Jesus with you, please hear me clearly, your friend is sharing with you an experience they've had that is so much better than a Kentucky win or a dry-aged cowboy ribeye. They're sharing with you a joy that can never be taken away. Kentucky is going to lose. The steak has its last bite, but Jesus is forever. That is why when your friend tells you about Jesus, it is the most loving thing they can do, and they want you to get in on that. You see, the reason my daughter quickly is getting baptized is because the faithfulness of people in her life, not just her dad, she's going to talk about she heard me preach, but she's going to talk about my wife reading the Bible with her every single night. And you know what else I know? There's some Mission Kids volunteers in there that have been so, thank you, thank you, so influential to be faithful to share and show Jesus to my daughter. You think back there, they feel like they're all that? I was a children's pastor for 10 years. I wonder if they caught anything. When I read her testimony, I was like, she does listen. Amen. But I need you to hear me. It's not just me. It's not just her. It's people within this church. Thank you. Thank you. You see, the blessed or the happy one is the man or woman who takes refuge in Jesus. And that is why we can't help but to tell you about Jesus. We want everyone in this room to be happy in him. So why share your faith? Why tell people about Jesus? It's because you and I want to see the glory of the Lord cover the city as the water covers the sea. And the only way that can happen is through average, everyday, ordinary people being faithful to share and show. Amen? So mission. Though I'm heading back to Kentucky, I'll make a deal with you. I'll be faithful to share and show there. You be faithful to share and show here. And maybe our disciples will meet in the middle, okay? Does that sound good? I can give my life for that. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we thank you so much for your grace and your mercy that you give so unconditionally through your son. And I pray right now, Father, for each and every person here, for those who don't know you, God, I pray that they trust in you right now. Help them to go back, talk to John, talk to me, talk to somebody. Maybe they don't leave here today without being baptized. But God, do not let go of them. Continue to pursue them. God, I pray for each and every person here who's a follower of Jesus, that this week you open up a door like Paul prays for in Colossians 4. Open a door for them to share Jesus and help them to do it with the joy that they have over, I don't know, a stake. Because, Jesus, you are so much more joyful than anything this world has to offer. And so may we be faithful to share and show, declare and demonstrate who you are to the people around us. Do all this, God, not for our name, but for your name. Not to us, but to your name be glory here in Las Vegas and throughout the world. Do all this, God, for your glory, our joy, and the good of this city. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.